Aloha. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. I'm your host, Chad Ford. My guest today is the athletic senior writer and host of the Hollinger and Duncan podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network, John Hollinger. Welcome back. Aloha, Chad. It's uh, great to be with you, John. We're going to go way back in our redrafts this year, all the way back to 2006. Fun times. Only actually a few players left still active in the NBA from this draft, Uh, but the ones that are are really good. And uh, if you're tuning in for the first time for our redrafts, John and I will redraft the entire lottery. We will go back and apply hindsight. In other words, what teams should have done based off of players' careers. And John, you are going to get the first pick in this draft. But before we dive in, let's take a look at what happened in 2006. And this one's a little bit complicated because there was a crazy amount of draft day and draft night trades in this draft in the lottery. Yeah, and you know, a lot of it didn't amount to much <laughs> as it turned out, right? <laughs> there really was a there was a ton of movement and it's not clear at all whether any of these guys or or most of them were actually worth it. We'll give some kudos to Portland who moved up to number 2 and 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 really got arguably the best player in this draft. So let's look at what happened. On draft night, mm-hmm. the Raptors had the number one pick in the draft. First time ever for them. They kept it. Brian Colangelo was the GM at the time. He loved international players. He loved Italy. Spent a ton of time in Italy, the Colangelos did. Selected Andrea Bargnani. Yeah. And this this is one of those where it, w- it was like, it was it was almost preordained because of those connections you mentioned. And that, that it was going to happen this way. And in retrospect, you know, as an organization, you need more internal firewalls sometimes so that something like this doesn't get such a, such a head of steam behind it that it becomes impossible to stop. Um, and th- th- that was one of the things I think I really took to heart from being on the, on the inside for seven years and talked to some other people who were as well and were able to talk to me a little more frankly than they might have if I was working at ESPN. So, um, you know, you just wonder looking back what they, what they could have done internally to kind of stop that train before it got such a head of steam that, that it was, it wasn't stoppable at some point. Right. Like everyone knew by like April, right. (laughs) That's what they were doing or the second they won the lottery. I guess. Yeah. And what was interesting while, while there wasn't a consensus number one guy in this draft, and that's part of the problem, you know, this is, this is a very shaky draft and, and, and I, and people even knew that at the time coming into it, he was probably, Colangelo was probably the only general manager in the league that had Bargiani number one on their, on their board. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that other teams didn't have him in their top five or, or top 10. It wasn't like he, he reached incredibly for Bargnani. Okay, number two, the, the Bulls had this pick. But on the day of the draft, they swap picks. They, they swap two and four with Portland. Portland moves up to two. Chicago gets four and Victor Kriapa out of Russia uh, in the deal. And they select LaMarcus Aldridge out of Texas. The Hornets... I believe they were the Bobcats back then. At number three, select Adam Morrison out of Gonzaga, far and away the college basketball player of the year. No question, he had a remarkable and incredible college basketball career. We'll talk about whether he should have been the third pick in the draft. Uh, at four, the Blazers, or sorry, the, the Bulls now have the fourth pick in the draft. They moved down two spots in the draft. They select Tyrus Thomas out of LSU. At five, the Atlanta Hawks select Sheldon Williams out of Duke. Another another sort of strange trade. Uh, A lot of trades happening here with picks six and seven. Minnesota originally has it. 
They end up swapping this pick again with Portland, who gets the pick seven. For, it's it's a long story. Let's let, let's just end with the Blazers end up with the sixth pick in the draft, and they select Brandon Roy out of Washington, and Minnesota essentially moves down one spot in this pick that originally belonged to Boston, and they select Randy Foy out of Villanova. Houston has the eighth pick in the draft. They trade it to Memphis, who selects Rudy Gay out of UConn. Golden State Warriors at 10, Patrick O'Brien out of Bradley. The Sonics on the board at 10, Mohamed Sayersene, who had a ridiculous wingspan. Ridiculous wingspan. Only played three seasons, 47 games in the NBA. At 11, the Orlando Magic selected a highly controversial pick at the time, J.J. Redick out of Duke. Teams were all over the mm-hmm. board about Redick and what he would be in the NBA. He also had a really terrific college basketball career, but lots of questions about how that translated to the NBA. At 12, the New Orleans Hornets at the time selected Hilton Armstrong out of UConn. At 13... Philadelphia trades this pick. The Bulls pick it up. Tabo Cephalosha out of Switzerland. My people. Tabo Cephalosha out of Switzerland. And at 14, the Utah Jazz select Ronnie Brewer out of Arkansas. Let's just start by saying this is one of the most disastrous top fives uh, uh, of of any draft, exactly right. And three, four, and five are all going to be major busts. Some of them were more controversial than others. Adam Morrison teams were all over the board, but again, he had a great college year. Tyrus Thomas teams were all over the board on him. Everybody scratched their head when Atlanta selected Sheldon Williams, and they were locked into that fr- from like April. Too. That was another one where they just were, they just went all in on that so early, and everyone was completely bewildered. Uh, shout out to Portland, by the way, for getting two all stars out of a dog shit. Draft. Really, I mean that's that's some pretty good pretty good maneuvering there. And you know, Brandon Roy, by the way, who was brilliant at Washington, mm-hmm. but had no knee issues at the time, where teams knew going into the draft that his career was likely going to be significantly shorter uh, than his talent yeah. talent suggested. And actually, that was something I believe that teams actually knew going into the draft on this particular one. This was a really, really hard draft to try to figure out how things were going to work out. On, on almost every single one of these prospects, I remember covering this draft. Man, everybody polarized. Some teams had Rajon Rondo in their top 10. Others had him in their 20s. Uh, Cyrus Sene, some teams didn't even have him in the first round. J.J. Redick was all over the board uh, with teams. Mm -hmm. Patrick O'Brien all over the board with teams. Some teams had Rudy Gay as the number one pick in the draft. And and he goes goes eight. Uh, Incredibly challenging draft. We'll we'll tell some stories along the way. I'm going to give you the number one pick in the draft. I think we know what's coming. Maybe you're going to surprise us. Who do you got at number one for the Raptors? So at number one for the Raptors, I will pick the uh, same position, but I will pick them a much better player. And I will give them LaMarcus Aldridge, um, who uh, went went number two, obviously, to Portland, uh, but member of uh, six All-NBA teams, I think. Uh, the, like his, his peak is definitely higher than anyone's in this draft. Still a pretty good player. Uh, number one guy in this draft, if you just look at total accumulations of like win shares and points and whatever uh just a really good solid career and our you know what's crazy is even in his case there wasn't a lot of stretches where he was actually the best player on his own team which like for the number one guy in the draft is kind of amazing right he's right at the cusp of the the transition of of big guys in the nba and and what's in what's coming and that there was the polarizing thing about Aldridge. You know, what, did he have the body strength to play the five? Right? Was you know he liked to play on the perimeter more. He was much more a face the basket sort of guy. And back in 2006, this was still 
a question mark about whether that's what you wanted uh, in your big men. And there are a lot of questions about LaMarcus Aldridge's toughness and you know how he was going to f- fare in the paint. But I think what the Blazers foresaw and, and Kevin Pritchard, who was the general manager at the time, who really everybody, a lot of fans loved Kevin Pritchard as a general manager because he rolled the dice. He wasn't afraid to be innovative in what he was doing. Uh, he was very aggressive in making trades. And this, this draft was a, a great example of that. Uh, he saw it and, and Toronto. And I, I think Aldridge was probably the only guy that was maybe like a lock for the top three in this draft, but there were still a lot of questions about him. Sure. Did not have a great freshman season at Texas. Uh, it's hard sometimes with college bigs if the system isn't right for them and they don't get the ball in the right places. You, you end up with not a lot to evaluate. Um, but I, th- I think it was obvious even from – it was obvious he'd be at least okay his rookie year. By his second year, it was obvious he was going to be a, a long-term guy in the league and, and might have a pretty high ceiling. The Blazers are at two. And they have – a a really interesting conundrum the year before in the draft they famously trade down in the draft because they don't think that chris paul or darren williams is necessarily going to be better than sebastian telfair uh who is their who is their point guard at the time and so you know say what you want about the greatness of kevin pritchard there was also some pretty big mistakes and they end up taking martell uh webster uh actually uh (laughs) instead I'm there the year before. So I'm going to give him a point guard who also is small in stature, like Telfair, but I think was a much, much better uh, player at two, and that's Kyle Lowry. Sure, yeah. I mean, clear, clearly, I think the number two guy in this draft, uh, just such a bulldog. The evolution in his shooting, obviously, was the big thing that raised him from he went 24th in this draft because as a collegian, he just could not shoot at all, could not even make a free throw. And to see him become a really good long range shooter at the NBA level to the point that it's the main weapon in his game, I think was almost unthinkable for anyone who saw him in college. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 fascinating, the evolution of his career, because it's not it's not clear early on that he is going to ultimately be like the second best player in this draft. His years at Memphis were, you know, okay, uh, mostly coming off the bench uh, at Memphis. It's not really, he doesn't become a starter really until the 2010-11 season in Houston. When, yeah, when half the other guys in this first round were already out of the league. Right, so he's he's at this point had one, two, three Four, this is his fifth season in the league before he becomes a starter. And even as a starter in Houston, he's 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 solid. He he's not great. He doesn't really explode in my mind until he's like t- about 28, 29 years old. Yeah. Uh, in, in Toronto. And so a guy that just kept getting better and better. And I and I think, you know, to your point, you look at those three point shooting percentages and you know, we're there and he shot uh, 25% from three his second year in the league. 25% from three the third year in the league. Actually, the scouting report on him was right. His fourth year in the league, 27%. And then there's just this freaky jump. In 2010, he jumps to 37% in Houston and doubles the amount of threes that he takes. And then consistently shoots around that number. For the rest of his career. I don't know how many uh, guys well, have done that. I mean, we always talk about, can a guy learn to shoot? Yeah. And of course, every agent in the draft is like, oh, if he can't shoot, he'll learn to shoot. That's the thing they'll always say. No, he'll figure that out. And I, I generally, my reaction is no, he's not going to learn how to shoot in the league. Somehow Kyle Lowry dramatically changed yeah. changed this part of his game around. Yeah. And it, it meant everything. And while we're, uh, since we uh, gave Brian Colangelo some uh uh, some shit for uh, taking Bargnani. Uh, trading a first-round pick in the teens for Kyle Lowry was certainly quite a move for the Raptors. Yeah, it it uh, it was really the start of of turning some things around for him. So he doesn't make an All-Star team until he's 28 years old. But then he's been on six straight All-Star teams, yeah. and even at 33 years old, especially on a player that relies a lot on 
on athleticism and, you know, quickness and toughness, he had a really good season for Toronto this year. Yeah, probably the best current player of anyone in this draft. Okay, that's number two, Kyle Lowry. Loved him in the draft, by the way, because of the toughness, the fierceness that he played, the competitiveness. The shooting obviously was a major, major question mark, but there was a lot of things to like about Kyle Lowry's game as well, and and uh, and he just rounded it out. Okay, the third pick in the draft goes to Charlotte. Adam Morrison has a great college basketball career. Throwback player. People were trying, because they're always looking for the next Larry Bird, to, to mm-hmm. make arguments that, that Adam Morrison was the next Larry Bird. Turns out to be an absolute disaster for Charlotte. Uh, some of it, again, because of uh, health health issues and, and injury concerns, but I don't think that was totally it. Uh, because when he was healthy uh, on, on the court, he was also struggling a lot. Who do you select at three? Uh, at three, I will not be selecting Adam Morrison. Uh, I will select, I believe he led the nation in both scoring and rebounding in his final year at Louisiana Tech. Was selected 47th by the Utah Jazz. They actually took somebody else at 46 ahead of him. <laughs> so I don't D know Brown. how he was even on their D board. Brown out of Illinois. Yes, but uh, I will select Paul Millsap uh, at number three. And Millsap had this this great college basketball career. You know, again, some of it is look at where he played and and probably how he was scouting. This was uh, this draft was held. The pre-draft camp was held in Orlando. He comes in to that pre-draft camp out of shape, like woefully out of shape. Mm-hmm. And and was terrible, uh, just just flat out terrible. I, he's one of the guys that like just torpedoed his stock, because and again I think it probably because he was so far off the radar screen. You know a lot of these, a lot of these players get with really high profile trainers. The agents get them in. They get their bodies in the best shape of their life. They're looking great. They're playing pickup games against other other prospects, and you know they're ready for the testing. They're ready for this entire environment. It looked like Paul Millsap at the end of the season had just like lived at the McDonald's drive-through for the last, uh, for like the last two months. He he did not have a big time agent. I think it was like his brother or his cousin or something was his agent. And so in defense of teams that had him going as low as, as he went, he did not look like he was prepared to make the jump to the NBA. And it obviously for scouting reasons, I think you could go back and, and, you know, look at that and say, look, you know, Millsap, we, we should have seen more out of him out of, out of college and, and weighed that more heavily than what you saw pre-draft. But you can't really blame NBA teams when you see a prospect come in out of shape and, and seemingly sort of indifferent to the process that that's going to raise red flags for teams. It leaves such an impression. And when you when you are in a system where you're just going home from the dance with one or two players, it's so hard to walk away and say, "Yep, that's our guy." Right. And espe- you know? especially when our guy didn't come from Duke, right? Or Kentucky, uh, or yeah. or anything like that. If you're from Louisiana Tech, you you've got to like prove something extra. Right to really make teams jump. Absolutely, he starts his career in Utah, and he's he's actually he's actually kind of solid right away. I I mean I so I covered Utah's uh, playoff series against Golden State that year, and to me, so Millsap was Carlos Boozer's backup. But if Boozer hadn't been there, I think Millsap would have put up numbers almost right away, because every time he came in, he was good. He played as a rookie about 15 minutes a game in the playoffs and uh was 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 earning was earning significant minutes and then it's uh you know you look at his his PER his advanced statistics they were always really strong and uh it doesn't it doesn't really take long uh for for Millsap to be a a really talented player one of these guys that just seems like he was also kind of perpetually underrated though his whole career and I don't know if it's because he started at Louisiana Tech or what have you. But one of those guys, when you look at it, like, you know, every year that Millsap has been healthy, 
He has been a productive, really talented NBA player and a guy that I just think gets lost. He, he has made four all-star teams uh, those four years that he was in uh, in Atlanta, but maybe deserved a few more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was always tough getting named to the team out of the West in Utah, and then he went back to the West with the with the Nuggets, and like he's still a pretty good player. Like he's a guy who even this summer will probably get paid as a thirty four year old, thirty five year old free agent, uh, just because he's still a, a good, productive player. Pretty like for a for a guy who came out as kind of a grunt, you know, layups and rebounds guy, like pretty skilled, like not just in terms of shooting, but can handle the ball and pass and do some things. He had he had some grab and go. Uh, in him, especially as a younger player. Just a good overall player. All right. The fourth pick in the draft, the Chicago Bulls. Trade down two spots, take Tyrus Thomas, one year out of LSU. Obviously, like a freak athlete, there was some appeal there. It gets a little harder now. I, I think those three guys are the top, clear top three guys in this draft, and then there's a little bit of a drop-off here. I'm going to select for the Bulls a guy that has just had a long, long NBA career and another guy that starts off slow despite his college pedigree but really begins to turn it on J.J. Redick at four. One of the elite shooters in the history of the NBA. I obviously bought that in. People hated him at Duke. They thought he had a bad attitude. There was questions about who he was going to defend in the NBA, which I think were, were, were accurate whether he was going to be able to be a starter in the NBA or whether he was going to be just the scorer off the bench. He starts his career at Orlando pretty slowly, uh, actually. Six points a game his rookie season. Second season, four points a game uh, in Orlando. Third season, six points a game. And he doesn't really take off until he gets traded uh, to Milwaukee. And then those years with the Clippers... And the last few years with Philadelphia, really, really strong. Again, sort of finished to his career at 35. And he was in New Orleans this year as a 35-year-old and still was averaging 15 points a game and was shooting, you know, a terrific 45% from the three-point line. And 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 then that's, that's Redick. I mean, that's what Redick does. He shoots a high volume of threes. And he shoots them very accurately. And credit to him for getting his defense to the point that he could stay on the floor. His rookie year, the opposing team went at him every single play as soon as he checked into the game. And he figured it out, though. He got his defense to the point that teams don't attack him that way. And that's, you know, that's that's part of it. If you can at least get your defense competent, right, then you can be on the court for your shooting and and make your living that way. But if you're if you're so bad that they're just going to ISO against you, then then you got no chat. Career 41.6% three-point shooter on a on a, you know, a lot of attempts, five attempts a game in 2015-16, maybe his best season in the NBA, led the league at 47.5% from 3 while still taking five and a half threes a game. Okay. John, you've got the fifth pick in the draft. This one belonged yeah. to Atlanta. They took Sheldon Williams. Uh, yeah. This is uh, Billy Knight. The Billy Knight yeah. era. The dark, yeah. the dark, dark days. In, in, yeah, in, fun times. In, in fun Atlanta times. at the time. Help out your, your adopted home team here. Yeah, uh, I'm going to take a uh, four-time All-Star who is still a halfway decent player in the league, uh, you know, almost a decade and a half later. Uh, that is, uh, Rajon Rondo, um, could be a little overrated in some respects, but I actually think in his twenties, he was also just a really good player because he was so good at both ends. Uh, just defensively, really active, really smart, crazy long arms for his size, never a shooter. And that always hurt offensively, but a really good passer who at his peak had enough quickness and speed to kind of negate the fact that teams weren't guarding him because he could get in the paint so easily. So I think overall, just a really good player for a number of years. And in, in this draft, there just aren't that many of them. Yeah, Rondo, and and I debated with Rondo and Redick at four. Rondo, the talent was clear. There was playoff Rondo uh, was, a, was a thing. 
the super competitiveness and intensity with which Rondo played the game was was amazing. Has the freakish hands. Uh, that his his nickname in the draft was E.T. Uh, because of the way uh, how long his fingers were, especially. And um, I remember I was at uh, I was in Chicago watching guys work out. And, you know, it, it, it started to be the point. There, there was a time when I was covering the draft when just about every prospect would like full on work out for me. Like they would they would go play five on five. They would do everything right. And and over the time, agents kept pulling back more and more and more. And now you're going to just see kind of guys shooting jumpers, you know, alone in the gym is where it sort of digressed to. The problem with Rondo is you can't show Rondo that way. That's that's the worst possible look for Rajon Rondo. And Rondo was all over the board. And so I, I'm nudging and egging on his agent. Like there's five on five. There's NBA players out on the floor. You know, if you really believe in this guy, let him go out and run. And finally, he caved, put Rondo out there, and Rondo just destroyed everybody uh, out there. He was so itching to get in the game. I mean, that was the thing. He was pacing like a tiger on the sidelines because his agent wasn't going to let him play uh, when I was there. And just went in and destroyed everybody. And you could see immediately the competitiveness, the defensive intensity, the willingness to pass the ball. Why did he slip to 21? There was a lot of concerns starting at Kentucky about how Rondo got along with his teammates, how he got along with his coaches. Uh, he was a very difficult player to coach. I don't think anything in the experience with Boston would tell you any differently. The talent was there. His relationship with his teammates was was rocky at times. And, and that became the other part of Rondo. Not only could he not shoot, but when you added him to your roster – there was going to be some chemistry issues and some problems with the coach and and his teammates, and that just kind of turned out to be true for a lot of his career. Amazing. Led the league in assists three years and uh, led yeah. the league in steals uh, one year and, as well. And this was the pick that Phoenix sold, I think, to Boston? Boston was seriously looking at Rondo at seven. Uh, before they end mm-hmm. up take they end up trading it to Minnesota, who then ends up trade, trading it uh, or tr- trades it to Portland, and then then they switch it with Minnesota. That and, and Rondo was one of those guys that was just all over the place. And so then Boston buys back into the first round to be able to get Rondo. And this was the thing they traded for that night, Sebastian Telfair as well. Uh, and so they ended up bringing in both point guards, you know, Rondo and Telfair, and we know which one turned out to be. The yeah. Get. <laughs> yeah. Two pretty good guards in the 20s there. Rondo at 21, Lowry at 24. Okay. I want to talk about our new sponsor, rockauto.com. It's a family business that's been serving auto parts to customers online for 20 years. And if you think about chain stores and they have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do it yourselfers, RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody. They're reliably low. They offer the lowest possible prices rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. RockAuto.com is for everybody and does not require membership or account login. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and then you choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Well, that is the first top five picks. And John, you know what that means? It is time for a built bar. And I'm going to open it up here. How do you, how do you feel about fruit flavors? They've got like a raspberry chocolate, they have a coconut one. 
That's awesome. You're in Hawaii. You got to have the coconut. Yeah, I'm, I'm like a big coconut. The raspberry chocolate cream is good as well. I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to go with coconut here. And, uh, you know, this has become the ritual in the podcast now that I get to eat one of these is like my treat for being uh, on the show. It's creamy. It's soft. It tastes like I'm eating a piece of C's candy. It's low in sugar. It's high protein. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about this before. You know, when you eat these protein bars, they, they leave this dry, chalky or grainy taste in your mouth. But this one is really yep. soft. And um, and the amazing thing is it tastes so good, but there's there's really actually low sugar content. There, there's 110 calories in one of these bars, lots of protein, and that is a, just a really amazing com, com, uh, combination for me. Uh, and so it gives you a great boost of energy, protein, great after workouts. Also could just be your candy bar substitute, frankly. And you know if you really crave candy during the day, you could actually eat one of these bars. It's going to be way more nutritious for you, give you way less calories and fat, going to give you some protein as well. And the, the other thing I love about it, there's a plethora of flavors that you can find on their website. They're always adding new flavors. There's like a blueberry flavor now, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and you can mix and match and, and essentially like build your own box. And so you, and maybe if you've got a lot of people in your family or whatever, everybody gets their favorite or if you just like a lot of variety as well. And so as we get back to redrafting the 2006 NBA draft, I want you to go to builtbar.com, use promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get $10 off your first order. Use promo code locked on at builtbar.com for $10 off your first order. Okay, John, we are back. Doing the 2006. NBA redraft, LaMarcus Aldridge, Kyle Lowry, Paul Millsap, J.J. Redick, Rajon Rondo, off the board, one through five. We're not going to do picks six through ten. The Blazers are on the clock via the Wolves. Again, it starts to maybe maybe drop off a little bit. This is where I'm going to select Rudy Gay. Okay. He went eight. He moves up two spots, never lived up to, in my mind, the potential that was there in this player. Good size, excellent athlete, could score the ball from multiple uh, places on the floor, shot threes, but lacked maybe that killer instinct or that that intensity or drive. And that was sort of the knock on him at UConn as well. Almost almost too smooth, gliding through his career a little bit. Had a really terrific career at Memphis, uh, then uh, in Toronto for a couple of years, Sacramento, uh, ending his career in San Antonio, and an Achilles injury uh, along the way. I believe that's right, right? Achilles injury? Yeah, yeah, he tore his Achilles uh, and, and in uh, his, I think it was his last year in Sacramento, and then signed with San Antonio and still uh, put together was like was really good last year, and then uh, still pretty decent this year. You know, we had we had Rudy Gay obviously my first year in Memphis, and the thing to me was le- less about like he him playing hard wasn't a problem, um, uh, just the the fit of a guy who was really. Uh, trying to be an on-the-ball scorer um, with Zach Randolph and Mark Gasol, who kind of needed the ball on the block, it, j- it just didn't work. And so that w- that that was why um, my first year there, we ended up trading him. To Toronto, uh, right? We traded him to Toronto. It was a three-way deal. We got Tayshaun Prince and Ed Davis and a second-round pick. And – what I mean, obviously, we had luxury tax issues too that played played into that, but the the fit was just better with somebody who didn't didn't need to like try to back guys down and and hold the ball and do whatever. 
where where Prince was going to be, you know, play more of a uh, a game where he was going to enter the ball in the post and then you know be more of a spot up shooter. Uh, in retrospect, I wonder if the Grizzlies had kept Shane Battier and not made this trade, if that would have been the best iteration of this team. Because that that was the trade they made with Houston. It was it was uh, I believe it was Stromile Swift and Shane Battier and and uh, uh, Rudy Gay came back to uh, the Grizzlies. And so you're arguing that if they had kept uh, Shane Battier and and moved off and and just let Rudy Gay let, go to Houston. Let Houston take take the pick. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. That would have been a much better fit for them long term. And and frankly, Rudy Gay's first season in in uh, in Memphis was you know maybe his worst. Okay, Rudy Gay, solid player. Never made an All Star team. Solid starter in the NBA. That's where we're at. At the sixth mm-hmm. pick in the draft, seventh pick. Goes the Wolves. This was a trade with the Blazers, but also via the Bulls, Sebastian, or via the the Celtics. Sebastian Telfair ends up going uh, to to Boston. This deal. Who do you have at seven? So I have. I actually had this guy higher on my board. I had Brandon Roy, and my argument is that so he only played five years. He played five games in a sixth season when he couldn't. Uh, play anymore in Minnesota. He played five real seasons, but he was so good for those five seasons. And to me, the draft is still about the ceiling and about what is the, you know, what, what produces the most high end potential outcomes for your team. And so getting Roy at that level where he played, especially his second, third and fourth years in Portland, you know, only a couple other guys in this draft ever attained anything close to that level. So I, I think at this point he has to be the pick. Yeah, I, I have. He was. He was. This is where he was on my board. Sounds like you had him a little higher. You know, to me, because even that 2010-11 season where he only played 47 games and his production plummeted, his field goal percentage plummeted, everything plummeted. Yeah, we're really talking about three All Star seasons and one yes. and one good rookie season uh, for mm-hmm. him, and that that becomes a little tough when Rudy Gay plays 14. Uh, well, I mean, to me, to me. So you have Brandon Roy playing at an all NBA level, his third season on a rookie contract. And then what's unfortunate for the Blazers is that they gave him a max extension and then he hurt his knee right away. Because the argument you can make is the guys, the years, the guy isn't in the league. You don't have to, you don't have to pay them for, you can get somebody else, but you, it's hard for you to get somebody who plays at an all-star level at any price. So that would be my argument for Roy. I'm, unfortunately, I mean, th- thank God for the Blazers. The amnesty rule came in right after that, and they were able to kind of wipe that away. Uh, I guess, you know, Paul Allen still had to fork out the money, but at least it didn't hurt their, uh, cap, hinder their yeah. cap and the rest of their team's development. And it, it's really interesting because Kevin Pritchard came heavily under fire, then forgiving Brandon Roy that extension. But this was a no-win situation for Kevin Pritchard. If they said, look, we know the knee's shaky. Brandon Roy has been all everything for us, but now we're just going to move on uh, because we're going to bet that his knee doesn't hold up. He would have been killed uh, as well for moving on. Not not only was Brandon Roy a great player for them, he was very much beloved uh, by the fan base, by the team. Uh, he, He sort of had to re-sign him. And... And that was what the market was going to be for Brandon Roy. His knee blows out the next year. They knew it was a risk coming in. Uh, but I, again, this is one of those situations where as a fan, it's a lot easier to to point fingers and be critical. But when you're sitting in that hot seat as a general manager, there really wasn't a great other option for, for Kevin Pritchard uh, at this point. He either gave away that asset, let him go sign with another team and handle and and bet and gamble that he doesn't get injured in the next couple of years and isn't out being an all-star on some other team that you refuse to play. Yeah, it would have been politically untenable, I think, not to do that max extension, unfortunately. So there ended up being five guys in this draft that made all-star teams, which is not bad. There's going to be another big drop-off now. We're at pick eight. I think at this point, you know, I don't, 
I don't know. Rudy Gay was the selection for the Grizzlies. Maybe they don't trade Shane Battier and Stroh Miles Swift uh, to the Rockets. Maybe the Rockets are, are picking here. Because there's a pretty big drop-off at this point in my, my mind about where oh, where yeah. you go here. And it, it's going to get worse. It's going to like drop off a cliff again <laughs> in a second. This is this is a bad draft. Yeah, people. like I, I, I had tried getting fourteen players that were like worth selecting in a redraft. I, I also was thinking maybe we should just cut this one off at ten. Uh, <laughs> I thought about having that conversation with you. Do a speed round. <laughs> it, it's it's that bad. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a player who's had a long career in the league, never been sexy on the offensive end, but has been terrific on the defensive end. Tabo Cephalosha. Yes, my Swiss brother. This high-level defender on some really good teams had some, uh, you know, was a was a played some point guard actually when he came up with Chicago. I mean, people think of him now as like a three-four, but uh, had had some ball handling chops to him. Never really got to a great place as a shooter, and that always limited him. But good defender, good athlete, especially as a younger player. Uh, good, just all-around team player, and was part of some good teams in Oklahoma City and Atlanta. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. He averages, and this maybe tells you a little bit about where we are in the draft, he averages 5.7 points per game for his career. And his high mark was 8.2 points a game as a 33-year-old in Utah. That was that was his high mark. Mm-hmm. It was interesting in those Oklahoma City years, he went a couple of seasons for them, 2011, 2012, 2012, 2013, where he shot over 40% from three. Yeah. That that 2012 season, he shot 42% and took three threes a game for for a non-shooter. And then he sort of regresses right back down after that to, to what he was most of his career. But I think the bigger question is, as you look at the number of field goals attempted for his career, he averages five field goals attempted a game. Yeah. Uh, he he wasn't taking shots. Just wasn't. Yeah, just was kind of a kind of a wallflower on offense most of the time. But the defensive presence and the fact that he did make an impact and was a starter on some really good teams in Oklahoma City and frankly, teams that didn't need his offense because they were loaded on that end made him a great complimentary player on those on those Thunder teams. Second team all defense in 2010. Okay. That's my selection at eight. The Warriors are on the clock at nine. They're not going to take Patrick O'Brien. I, I guess. I think that's a think that's a fair, uh, fairly safe bet. Uh, I'm going to take a guy who did not get established in the league until 2012, even though this is the 2006 draft, uh, but is now a starter and is probably currently almost as valuable as anyone uh, from this draft right now. And that is PJ Tucker. Wow. Who went 35. Uh, with the 35th pick uh, Toronto again, uh, got a better player at 35 than they did at one. And what do you like about Tucker? I mean, just the defense is the biggest thing. Just so tough. And it was hard. He played as a very undersized four at, uh, at Texas as, especially at the time. And I think it was tough for him coming into the league because everyone wanted to make him a two-three, and the league kind of evolved to the point where it came back to him a little bit. I mean, he got better as an outside shooter, especially from the corner, so that helped. But I think one of the big things that helped him is the league started sizing down and started valuing more kind of the things he could give you in terms of being tough and switchable and able to use his body and get under bigs, but not not necessarily like a rim protector or anything, and. And so now he probably has as much value as he's ever had as a 33, 34-year-old. It's really interesting, his career, because he he actually plays 17 games his rookie season for Toronto. And then he's out of the league for the next five years, and he goes to Israel, he goes to Ukraine, he goes back to Israel, he goes to Greece, he goes to Italy, he goes to Germany. I mean, this guy is moving all over the pro leagues uh, throughout, throughout Europe. And doesn't come back until he's with Phoenix and he's a 27-year-old. And for most NBA players, that that's a death knell. Being five years out of the league, I don't care what sort of career you're having in Europe, 
NBA team. Those guys never come. NBA back. teams yeah. aren't going to touch yeah. you, and it doesn't often make sense yeah. for them to come back because they're if they're yeah. good overseas, they're making enough money and they're they're playing a big role on their team that to come back and be yeah. a role player in the NBA and make a lot less money actually doesn't make a lot of sense for him. PJ Tucker gambled on himself and it paid off, uh, but actually a very rare profile for a player to come back and do that. Okay, the tenth pick in the draft, Seattle selected. Mohamed Sirasene. I just think they looked at his Woof. seven foot eight wingspan and said, "We'll take you." Uh, that was a a a major mistake, uh, and uh, may have been the biggest bust of any any of the top prospects in this draft. I'm going to give them the number one pick in the draft here, Andrea Bargnani. Wow. Okay. This won't. He didn't have Brandon Roy numbers, but there was a couple of years in this in the league where Bargnani actually looked like he might be something. He averaged twenty one point twenty one points a game in the 2010-11 season for Toronto. Nineteen and a half points a game in the 2011-2012 season, and for early in his career, and this is a really sort of weird thing. He was actually he could could stretch the floor and really shoot shoot. He shot forty one percent from three, two thousand eight, two thousand nine season, his third year in the league. Thirty seven percent. He kind of drops off a cliff later. His his I'm glad you brought that up. His non development as a shooter, I think, was a big surprise. Like as much as much as Toronto shouldn't have taken him number one, I still thought he'd be better than this. And the reason is, like, his his stats from Europe were pretty good for a young player. And his potential as a shooter, I think, was really, uh, really tempting. And you really thought he could get to a place where he was a reliable pick-and-pop weapon who could maybe, like, you know, be 40%, be sort of, you know, an Italian Dirk almost. Uh, not, not that level. He was never that athlete or anything. But just in terms of being a big who could stretch the floor and confuse defenses and whatnot. And he just never got there, man. He, he didn't get there. And I think one of the things that is the curse of being the number one pick, and in this case, Brian Colangelo fed into this, was the comparisons to Dirk. He was going to be the next Dirk. Colangelo mm-hmm. was referred to him in in those contexts himself at times. And so you're comparing him to a Hall of Famer. And he was never going to get there in part because he didn't have, as you pointed out, Dirk's athleticism. And that was going to be a major, major difference in Bargiani and Dirk. He also was a poor rebounder. Defensively, he was he was nothing. And that, and yeah, that's putting it kind. And of, yeah. uh, you so so he was what he was, and that was a a big that could stretch the floor and and you know could score the basketball a bit. And and I think that those expectations being the number one pick loomed over him. You kind of hoped when he went to New York, when he was uh, when the, the Knicks decided that Bargiani was going to be uh, <laughs> one of the worst trades ever. Uh, what were the details of that trade again uh, with the Knicks? They gave up a first and a second to get Bargiani, even though he had, like his contract was terrible. He was making over ten million, I want to say, and this was this was at a time when not a lot of guys did. And the Knicks sent a first and a second to Toronto in order to acquire him. And he played a grand total of 71 games over two seasons uh, for them. Yeah. Two of the worst seasons of his of his career. Played one more year in Brooklyn and was done. But if you look compared to the rest of the guys I think we're going to talk about, about peak Bargiani in you know, 2009 through like 2012, you you had a guy who, if nothing else, could stretch the floor and put up twenty points a night uh, on an on an NBA team, which is pretty hard to say about anybody else that's left on this list. And why I have him at ten? Okay, let me tell you about my secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more when you don't have free time. You can't read or work on personal development. There is an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. 
Successful people like business leaders are well known for reading a lot of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using the information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or your lunch break or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, the history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had the time. I've read The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World by Jamil Zaki, and The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt, and I highly recommend you check them out. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for a low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA, try it for free for seven days, and save 25% on your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash NBA to start your free seven-day trial, and you'll save 25% off, but only when you sign up on Blinkist.com slash NBA. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. John Hollinger is here with me. We are redrafting the 2006 NBA draft. We have gotten through the first 10 picks in the draft and are now on pick 11. The Orlando Magic are on the board. They took J.J. Redick. He's off our board. John, who do you have at 11? I'll give them the same initials. Undrafted out of Northeastern University, still ticking 14 years later, J.J. Barea, world champion with Dallas, uh, had a forgettable three-year interlude in Minnesota, and otherwise has been a maverick the whole time, and uh, I think that's worked out great for Dallas. It really has, and you know, you think about scouting in J.J. Barea, and you understand why he wasn't selected in the draft, right? He doesn't really, you know, short tiny arms, not a great athlete. Like you, you, you know, all the, th- not even a great shooter. Not, yeah. Not yeah. even a great yeah. shooter. I mean, really could play the game, but as far as like draft metrics go, it was sort of understandable mm-hmm. that he went undrafted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A- and, yeah. and this is again, you know, those metrics can all say whatever they want to say, but sometimes guys just really know how to play and they, and they figure out a way to minimize their weaknesses and, and to maximize their strengths in the NBA and credit to J.J. Beret and Dallas for making that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if he was in this year's draft with that college resume, whether he you know would go in the first round. This is a really rocky draft 2020, so maybe second round. Okay, New Orleans on the clock. They took Hilton Armstrong. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Disastrous draft for New Orleans here because they had just selected Chris Paul and David West the previous two drafts, and they had two picks in the top 15 here. This was really the chance to cement that team and make it uh, you know, an elite, elite team for a number of years in the West, and they missed on both picks with Hilton Armstrong and Cedric Simmons. And the one thing that I will say, though, is I'm not sure they were going to hit – uh, on, on, <laughs> right. on a pick, yeah. right? I mean, we're at the point when I'm like, you know, they, they weren't going to add to that core uh, with mm-hmm. any of these guys yeah. that's left. I'm going to give them, and again, this is I'm not really sure who to give them here. I'm going to give them Randy Foy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he he was never what we thought he was going to be out of Villanova. Uh, a, a guy that that looked like he was going to be able to play multiple positions and and was going to be a, a strong shooter and score in the NBA. His best season was his third year in Minnesota, where he averaged 16 points a game and four assists a game, and and looked like maybe he was going to be an up and coming player. But after that, became a journeyman. Went to Washington, went to the Clippers, went to the Jazz, went to the Nuggets, went to OKC for a year. 
uh, back to Brooklyn. There was a number of guys that I could sort of select that sort of fit that profile. I'd say that Randy Foy's, you know, first three years in the league and then a sort of middle section there with the Clippers and and Jazz probably warranted him going a little bit higher for me. Uh, but mm-hmm. Randy Foy, or I think whoever we're going to select with the next two picks, wasn't going to be the guy that was going to put New Orleans at the next level. Uh, no, no, certainly not. Okay, uh, the Bulls are on the board at 13. They got this pick from the 76ers. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to take a guy who actually did end up playing for the Bulls a few years later, uh, Ronnie Brewer. Uh, kind of forget about him because he's his career flamed out uh, around 2013, but started over 300 games in the NBA, was a starter starter for some good Utah game Utah teams when he came his second and third season in the league especially, um, and then the league really evolved away from him because he could not shoot, and although he was athletic and a decent defender and could run the floor and do some things, I think as Year after year, his inability to shoot just became more and more of a drag. And especially as he got later into his 20s and lost some athleticism, it just got to the point where you couldn't have him out there anymore. But, I mean, the that start of his career was still really good. Certainly compares favorably to what anyone else on this board has right. done. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was a double-figure scorer his second and third season uh, and, and did it, like, as a role player, did it efficiently, uh, you know, shot 55.8% his second year. So... I'm going to go with Ronnie Brewer. That's here. who I had as well. You know, this is actually really weird for as bad a draft as this is and grasping for straws. Like our our 13 guys have been the same 13 guys. Uh, so um, that that says something that with very little <laughs> variation. I had Ronnie Brewer here as well, and and I think that's just a great point. I actually really liked Ronnie Brewer coming out. I actually, you know, watching him as a 22 year old, 23 year old in Utah, you would not have predicted what was going to happen with the rest of his career. And, and how quickly yeah. it was going to go downhill from there. And I think, to your point, the league evolved away from Ronnie Brewer as much as his game deteriorated. And, uh, you know, that happens. Okay, you leave me with the Jazz at 14. I, I, I like, looked at this list like 20 times to try to find the 14th pick. This is a real barrel scrape 14th right here, pick huh? of the draft. I just think I ended up, like, settling on, like, longevity maybe. Uh, with mm-hmm. a 32nd pick in the draft, Steve Novak out of Marquette. Okay. And, you know, the one thing that you can say about Steve Novak was that he was a career 43 or 43% three-point shooter yeah. in the league, could stretch the floor, was valuable in that way, never had a season where he averaged uh, double digits, did have a season in 2011 and 12 for the Knicks when he led the league in three-point percentage, uh, taking five uh, threes a game. But even then, he was he was good that that year in New York. Yeah, took five threes a game, yeah. and somehow still didn't average ten points a game. <laughs> and uh, that you know that that that's kind of all you need to know. That season, he only took uh, of of his field goal attempts for the season. He took six field goals a game, and five of them were threes. That's my guy. All right, uh, journeyman around the board. You want to fight me on anybody else? Was there a, a guy that you had? at 14 that you like better that there's nobody i didn't have novak at 14 i i actually had uh booby gibson but i mean like this is not a fight worth having okay all right we will not fight over booby gibson <laughs> so let's where maybe there's some fun in this draft is doing some csi and what happened mm-hmm. in the top of this draft so let's start with adam morrison what went wrong so I think there were a lot of red flags coming right out and just in terms of um, what his athletic indicators were at, at coming out of Gonzaga. I think I remember writing about this at, a, at the time. Um, and, and analytically, there, there, were, there were some things that really made you wonder if he was going to be able to make the transition. Um, and unfortunately, all those things played out. He obviously had a knee injury too, which didn't help because he was already at a little bit of a deficit athletically. But then just a guy whose whole game was built on tough twos was now trying to take even tougher twos at a, at a pro level. And it just at some level, it just didn't work. You know, all of this hype was essentially generated around his junior season where he averages 28 points a game in, in the college basketball, which is really remarkable. And in that season, 
one thing that dramatically improves is he goes from being a 30% three-point shooter his first two years in, the, in college to being a 43% three-point shooter. And, you know, that was part of his game that he really added. But if you look at everything else, there was questions about that. And it, and it turns out that he kind of regressed back to the mean even as a shooter uh, in the NBA. He, yeah. didn't even bring, he didn't even really bring that to the table. And I think that even scouting him, there was there was questions about it. Couldn't defend anybody. We knew that was going to be a major issue. And then, as you said, his creativity and being able to get shots was really fun to watch in college. But you wondered when he gets around more athletic defenders, and he's already having to do and make these incredibly tough shots just to get his points, what that's going to look like in the NBA. And I actually almost feel like it was kind of predictably played out the way that most of the concerns about him uh, the, the questions that people were asking, like all of them were answered. All the concerns were, yeah, that's a concern. Yeah. yeah. And, the, you know, the diabetes as well, I think, was, uh, you know, clearly also played a role um, in all of this. Fair point. Yes, absolutely. He was frustrated, though. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard him talk, you know, since then that he doesn't didn't feel like he got maybe the fair shot uh, in the NBA as well. And, you know, that's that's it. It's really tough when you go from averaging 28 points a game on a team like Gonzaga and you're sort of a national icon and hero to coming to the NBA and like what it just has to happen for almost all of these players, at least for the elite, you've got to start to fill a role and, and do something that makes your team better. And it wasn't clear what Morrison could actually do. Um, he wasn't going to score efficiently. He wasn't going to defend. He wasn't going to rebound. Um, what does he do to really move the needle for your team? Just in, in a series of Charlotte mess-ups, this one was was pretty dramatic because at least at this point, yep. there were other guys on the board that, that certainly could have been better. Let's talk about Tyrus Thomas. What happened with Tyrus Thomas? Good player for a little while. Like, we could have taken him at 13 or 14 just as easily. His first season in Charlotte after they traded for him was actually really good. Um, then he started having the knee problems and everything went downhill because there was just no skill level uh, to have to be a foundation for him. So it was all athleticism, run, dunk, block shots. So once that some of that bounce went away, the game just got really hard for him. He needed to be that crazy energy guy. Right. And, you know, we project guys, and I'm all for that. I, I hate just looking at a prospect and saying, well, this is what he can't do, and so he'll never be able to do it. I mean, we just talked about Kyle Lowry and – and what he ended up learning how to do. But for someone like Tyrus Thomas, this was a clear case of embrace what you do well and, and you'll be okay in the league. But if you try to be Kobe Bryant, you're going to be a bust. Sheldon Williams. Yeah, I mean, I saw him a bunch. I don't think this was a case of like red flags or anything. He just, he just wasn't that good and shouldn't have been the fifth pick. <laughs> right? Like there's, there's no mystery here. Yeah. You should have been in the like 20s, you know, 30s on yeah. the, on a draft board. Yeah. And the Hawks just lost their minds taking him five. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a what? You know, and we knew actually yeah. there was a lot of there was a lot of rumblings that this was their guy and that they'd locked in early on him, whatever. But everybody was like, they're not actually going to do it or they're going to trade down in the draft to get him or whatever. Yeah. Awful. Uh, Patrick O'Brien. Yeah. He, uh, you know, that was like a, a speculative pick a little bit. Like he'd had a pretty good year at Bradley, right? But he wasn't, it wasn't what, it, he wasn't drafted based on what he was. He was drafted on people projecting ahead for what he might be. Certainly not as quite as desperately as Mohamed Sene was maybe, but it was the same idea, right? Well, he, I mean, he did have that one assist and I do mean one. He had one career assist. Career. Now, in fairness, he played 260 minutes. So his career wasn't much of a career. Obviously, people were thinking about shot blocking uh, being uh, being the thing. His assist to turnover ratio <laughs> went assist to fifteen turnovers. That's got to be some sort of historic number as well. Yeah, went one assist to forty four fouls. How about that? Uh, that's that's there as well. I feel like the NBA may have evolved from these sort of sorts of picks. I'm trying to think like in the last five or six years where anybody's done something like Muhammad Sayer Sene. And I, and I don't, I just don't think so. I think that maybe, maybe he 
became the cautionary tale about just taking international or, or player if, based off a of physical profile and hoping that they turn out. Or if they've done it, they've done it. Like Bruno was the 21st pick or something. Right. 22, you know, nobody, they haven't done it at 10. Right. And, and, but Bruno had some game right now, whether it translated the NBA or not. I mean, mm-hmm. Cyrus Sene was like the only thing yeah. you could say about his game was that he was really long and that he, you could project him as a shot blocker. All right, that was the 2006 NBA draft. Let us never speak of it again. You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. Aloha. Aloha.